I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending August 7th. In this episode, the semiconductor industry is negotiating two seismic events. Arm Holdings provides technology that is fundamental to vast swaths of the electronics business. It is reportedly up for sale, and it seems the most likely buyer is NVIDIA. The combination could significantly alter market dynamics. We'll be discussing that with Tyrius Research Analyst Kevin Crewell. Meanwhile, Americans agree on so little these days, it's almost shocking how quickly the consensus has been reached on promoting semiconductor technology in the U.S., Politicians are working on legislation to encourage more domestic semiconductor technology development. Why and how might all that work? We talk with longtime industry analyst Dan Hutchison, with James Lewis of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and with Intel's Chief Government Affairs Officer, Jeff Rittner. Arm Holdings was founded in the UK and now has dual headquarters in England and in the US. It designs microprocessor cores, enabling its licensees in its huge ecosystem to design everything from sensors to smartphones and services based on Arm's IP cores. Japan's SoftBank bought Arm Holdings for $32 billion in 2016 and in the process took Arm private. Since its acquisition, SoftBank has talked about its plan to spin ARM through a public offering sometime down the line. But then, a couple of weeks ago, SoftBank reportedly received an offer from NVIDIA to buy ARM outright. As we recorded this podcast, there were reports the deal was in advanced negotiations. The combination of NVIDIA and ARM is interesting for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that many people originally considered it to be unlikely in large part because the two already compete directly with each other in the GPU market, and also because many companies that use ARM IP compete with NVIDIA. Kevin Crewell follows the processor market for Tyrius Research and is a frequent guest in this show. International editor Junko Yoshida reached him in Maui, which he brags is a marvelous place to be quarantined. She talked to him to provide some perspective on a possible combination of NVIDIA and ARM. What do you think has motivated NVIDIA to initiate negotiation, if true, or vice versa? Do you think ARM actually went to NVIDIA to um, set this up? Well, I think the, the, there's, there's a couple of factors, and one of which I think which is underappreciated is the fact that there is a connection between NVIDIA management and ARM management that may not be obvious to most. And that is that Rene Haas, who is the president of the IP part of ARM, uh, is a former NVIDIA executive. Uh, there's another, uh, there's other executives at ARM, like uh, Drew Henry, also ex-NVIDIA. Wow. So there's a uh, innate connection between the two companies and at an executive level. And there may be a sense of comfort that uh, well, the ARM executives haven't been told that well, we're going to, you know, by SoftBank, they're going to spin you out. And so they're, they're thinking about where, where, where are we going to wind up? Is it an IPO? Is some hedge fund going to buy us? And there's a sense, sense of uncertainty. So maybe they've gone out and searched for possible suitors. And one of those possible suitors uh, would be NVIDIA because of the, the, those connections. And they may have approached NVIDIA. And I doubt Jensen was 
in uh, Jensen Wong, CEO of NVIDIA, is out there looking for IP companies to buy. He just bought uh, Mellanox, uh, and that's, that was a pretty big acquisition for him. So this would be by far the biggest attempted acquisition uh, NVIDIA has ever attempted and, and would certainly uh, be much larger than the uh, Mellanox acquisition. So this is, this is big stuff. Yep. All right. That's interesting. That's a kind of a new theory that I was not aware of, but uh, that's uh, certainly in the cards. So let me turn it around. Um, what would be in it for NVIDIA? How would NVIDIA gain by investing or by outright acquiring ARM? What do you think? Well, ARM is the largest IP company and most pervasive IP company in the world. Uh, NVIDIA would gain access to that entire customer base. Uh, NVIDIA would also have the opportunity to incorporate some of its technology and, with ARM and license them together. So it would be a way for NVIDIA to make its own IP as pervasive or attempt to make it as pervasive as the ARM IP is. So there's uh, certainly a, an opportunity to, to bring uh, the NVIDIA IPO to a much larger stage than it ever has in the past. Right. Okay. But I can't imagine if anybody who is currently licensee of ARM uh, would be happy about this. In other words, I think there are a lot of reasons for them to be concerned about. Um, can you spell out the, some of the concerns why the I, I, ARM licensees should be concerned about this? Well, certainly they would be concerned because NVIDIA competes with a number of the ARM license, other ARM licensees. Uh, you know, companies like Qualcomm, even Apple and um, NXP and uh, all those companies uh, and, and, and uh, you know, ST Micro, Renesas, uh, all these in automotive, they all compete with NVIDIA. And therefore, there'd be a concern about uh, NVIDIA having direct control over IP that these other companies need and, and rely upon. So that would certainly raise um, alarm, I think, at those companies. Uh, unless NVIDIA could structure it in such a way that it's very much hands-off. Where um, and, and, you know, there are ways of, of doing this. I mean, you look at Qualcomm. Qualcomm has uh, two parts of the business. One is the chip business and one is the technology licensing business. So those two are you know, licensing business licensed to uh, many different companies, including Apple and, and the competitors like uh, Huawei and Samsung and uh, MediaTek. And yet, the same thing, they compete uh, on those technologies uh, in the chip business. So it can be structured, but it's got to be very, very carefully structured uh, to allay the fears of uh, these ARM licensees. And especially, I would take it that um, if uh, I'm in the embedded market, for example, I would be very concerned how much um, you know stake or how much how, how much investment NVIDIA might take uh, to expand the arm in the future, right? Yeah, NVIDIA is typically more concerned or are actually more active in the higher end of the market. Right. Um, the microcontrollers, the Cortex M, the Cortex Rs. Those would uh, possibly um, be less, you know, be less focused on those, and there would, there would be less um, interest in, in NVIDIA uh, um, executive team in 
what were the direction of those, even though, you know, by from terms of sheer volume, they are by far the largest volume uh, IP that ARM uh, produces. So, you know, one of the things that uh, it kind of caught my eyes, uh, you know, um, uh, listening to your response when I was writing my story is that uh, you said, I'd rather see ARM going IPO or alternatively, a developer consortium of companies investing in ARM and uh, give giving all the stakeholders a seat at the table. You know, those the, the IPO, I get it, but the consortium, that was something that I had not thought about. Give me your reasoning why this could be attractive. Sure. Uh, the IPO would continue ARM as an independent company. So that that's the straight up easiest uh, solution there to keep everybody happy. The uh, consortium idea is, I was thinking this in, in terms of the risk five uh, uh, development, and they have their foundation, and which is an independent foundation that helps develop the cores, uh, develop the IP, not the cores, but the the instructions and and the, amount and the ecosystem. And everybody in the risk five ecosystem gets a seat at that table, so they get to go into the committees, help define the instructions. Uh, so there's a there's a engagement of the community and ecosystem with the direction of the RISC-V architecture. And by creating a consortium to own ARM, this would give the key stakeholders of ARM's ecosystem, the licensees, a seat at that table. They could help influence the direction of the architecture, you know, more so than, than they have even in the past. I mean, there, there used to be a concern that ARM had didn't get enough feedback from the uh, from its licensees, and uh, since under SoftBank, they've improved tremendously in that area. But this would even a, a, another step further to really engage the the licensees and ARM in a uh, a real dialogue, a continuing ongoing dialogue with licensees have a tremendous amount of input in the future of the ARM architecture. All right, that's um, that. If that happens, that's actually a really interesting development, especially given the fact that uh, RISC-V is gaining certain momentum and uh, where the ARM is going to end up pretty much depends on what the next step ARM would take, right? Certainly. uh, It's up to, well, it's up to SoftBank in a a large uh, sense because they they own the company right now and and they have the ultimate uh, say on, on what happens to ARM. But uh, I, you know, the ARM architecture is so pervasive. It even if the worst situation occurs and uh, in uh, the licensees are very unhappy, it would take, you know, many years uh, to unwind the the industry's dependence on the ARM architecture. Uh, so that wouldn't happen in a short term. It would take a much. It's still a long term proposition. All right. Very good. Thank you so much, Kevin. Hello and aloha. As we recorded this episode, several newspapers in Asia were reporting that TSMC, the world's largest IC foundry, and Foxconn, the system integrator famous for building Apple's iPhone, are both talking to SoftBank about the disposition of ARM. We're going to take a break in the festivities for a bit of shameless self-promotion. We've got not one but two new podcasts that debuted this week. They're also pretty darn good. 
and we think you'll enjoy them. One is on artificial intelligence, hosted by one of the leading journalists covering AI in the business, our own Sally Ward-Foxton. We'll let you figure out why it's called AI with Sally. The inaugural episode looks into why it is so darned difficult for AI to distinguish many sounds, among other topics. Our other new podcast is about power electronics, called Power Up. It's hosted by Maurizio De Palo Emilio, the estimable editor-in-chief of our sister publication, Power Electronics News. Power ICs are still at the beginning of an exciting evolution from silicon to other materials. The first episode examines the use of one of those new materials, gallium nitride. It's titled, Yes We Gan. If you like dad jokes, that was my idea. If you don't, I'm going to pretend Maurizio came up with it all by himself. AI with Sally and Power Up join another relatively new podcast, Embedded with Nitin Dahad. And of course, the weekly briefing, which I need not explain because you're listening to it. All four are available through the usual podcast availability suspects, Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, Android, and Blueberry. They can also be found on our website at eetimes.com. Click the nav bar button that says radio. The United States is preparing legislation to support domestic development of semiconductor technology. We invited several guests to talk about that. One is Jeff Rittner, Chief Government Affairs Officer at Intel. He recently wrote a blog on the subject. The link is on this podcast episode's webpage. We also talk with Dan Hutchison, one of the most experienced analysts in the semiconductor business, and with James Lewis, Senior Vice President and the Director of the Technology and Public Policy Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a prominent think tank in Washington, D.C. In recent decades, the U.S. has been dogmatic about businessmen and investors being given pretty much free reign to do whatever they want. What businessmen and investors all want is to cut expenses and maximize profits. A natural result is that manufacturing, big expense, almost has to happen someplace where labor costs are significantly lower than they are in the U.S. That's a key impetus for globalization. Dan Hutchinson explained that the industry began globalizing 50 years ago, and now there are entrenched centers of excellence. The semiconductor industry along the way was globalizing just simply because you have uh, uh, areas of excellence that are very regional and they don't cross. You can't uh, duplicate it at different areas, right? So you've mm-hmm. had uh, uh, Japan lithography, Japan uh, uh, resist processing. You had, uh, we've had materials coming out of Japan that are just the best in the world. You've had, you know, in, in the old days, you had East Coast, uh, uh, part of the semiconductor industry in the United States, which died off because it wasn't competitive. Out of that, you know, you have Europeans putting tons of money into trying to get there uh, to be vertical and mm-hmm. have their own vertical silos going back to the, the 80s. And um, out of that comes ASML. 
know, and, and, and that's fine. And, and, and but SML is the only place in the world where you can get these EV tools. So, and, and today you can't build a semiconductor without having any everything, or, or without having anything come across the border at some point. Uh, it's impossible. But that said, that is a progress that has been built over 50 years. That 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 situation, and. Meanwhile, you've got the world is trying to adapt to this new Cold War between China and the United States. It's been it's been going on, uh, and and that's probably not going to go away. I did mm-hmm. a presentation back in ISS some, uh, about twelve years ago, semi ISS, in which I predicted this would happen that we were in a situation where where the Chinese were basically waging an economic war for their own benefit. Which every country tries to do, right? Uh, sure. But the Chinese were very successful at it because of their extremely low wage rates. U.S. semiconductor companies have been arguing all along that the U.S. needs to take more active measures to ensure competitiveness in semiconductor technology. The U.S. Department of Defense has been in agreement. The DOD has always been keen on maintaining technological superiority and it has demonstrated that by supporting the development of computer and integrated circuit technology from the inception of both. The industry and the DOD were mostly ignored, however. The thing is, globalization works swimmingly, reasonably well for everyone, when things are going well. And for a long time, things have been going quite well. And slowly, inexorably, significant parts of the semiconductor industry drifted from the U.S. to other countries. Globalization ceases to work so well, however, when something bad happens. For example, a trade war between the world's two largest economies, or a global pandemic, or both at the same time, not to put too fine a point on it. Now, Controlling access to leading technology has regained importance for the U.S. Having a reliable and steady supply of leading-edge technology has also regained importance for the U.S. And now the industry and the Defense Department can finally accomplish something that previously was unthinkable. This is James Lewis. One thing that's changed in the last few years in Washington is that Industrial policy used to be radioactive. Nobody would touch it. Now, thanks to China, uh, it's something that people talk about on both sides of the aisle. And the concern is particularly focused on semiconductors. Everyone now realizes that semiconductors are a strategic industry and that the U.S. probably needs to think of ways to compete better with China. What you're seeing now is action on the Hill with legislation, the Cornyn-Warner bill, which was joined by Senators Schumer and Cotton. It leads the way on this. There's a matching bill in the House produced by Senate, uh, Congressman McCall. Um, what you've got is uh, what Senator Warner put is real money, uh, real money for a change that will be spent over a period of years. Uh, among different departments and among different projects. So Commerce gets some for a study on the semiconductor industry. DARPA and the National Science Foundation get some. Uh, DOD gets some. Uh, 
This is uh, spreading the wealth among programs to focus on R&D to create incentives. A couple of bipartisan bills have been drafted. In them, there's a combination of incentives, subsidies, and tax credits designed to not only encourage chip manufacturing operations in the U.S., but also closely related technologies such as packaging and assembly. Those bills have been folded into the National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA. More legislation allocating more resources to support semiconductor technology is expected to be on the way. The measures being considered appear to be still negotiable, however. In last week's podcast, we talked with Adam Kahn, CEO of Acon Semiconductor, who wanted to make sure the U.S. supports research into new materials likely to become increasingly important in the semiconductor industry, including gallium nitride, silicon carbide, and Acon's area of expertise, Diamond. Last week, we also observed that Intel is angling for some grants. If we're going to talk about U.S. semiconductor competitiveness, we have to talk about Intel. And if we're going to talk about Intel, we need to talk about what Intel CEO Bob Swan said two weeks ago, which was subject to a lot of interpretation. He mentioned that Intel is considering having some of its advanced production done by third party foundries. Many inferred that Intel might be evaluating whether it should stop developing leading-edge process technology. We're done with inference. We're done with interpreting. I asked Jeff Rittner what Intel's plans are. He said the company is committed to developing new process technology. Swan's comments about going to outside foundries was all about ensuring a steady supply of product, Rittner said. Nothing more than that. Okay, with that out of the way, what does Intel want out of the new legislation? And the answer is, grants to support new research and new manufacturing. The company is preparing to open its newest fab in Arizona, and it has a major construction project going on in Oregon. It is uh, nearly $10 billion to actually be able to build a state-of-the-art manufacturing facility. And this is compared to $2 billion maybe back 20 years ago. And so we see about a 13% change year over year on, on the increase of what it costs. And then in addition to that, if you look at the cost of doing a similar build and operation outside of the U.S., let's say in Asia, there's a 25% differential. Right. So if you just look at those those numbers, it's it's no reason, you know, we'd we'd like to to see the U.S. government really help, you know, level the playing field. We're looking for um, uh, the grant, you know, and dollars that would be offered through that grant. And we're looking for tax incentives through the, you know, the investment tax uh, credits. And we believe that this is important for the entire semiconductor ecosystem. Right. I think there are many players. not just in the area of manufacturing and process, but there are folks that focus in on equipment, on uh, litho, on um, you know, uh, chemistry, some chemistry, all those things. Yeah. And I think all of that, we we would see that this funding should be available and helpful to create a a a leading edge semiconductor manufacturing industry. And we believe that that should be here in the U.S. I mean, this is over the years. I mean, we are the the, the ones that began this. We are the the ones that have had this leadership, and we want to make sure we keep it in the United States. 
Hutchison sounds in favor of the legislation, but he did call it, quote, a honeypot, unquote. In other words, a big pile of money that everybody wants a share of. But this is, after all, a defense bill, and the justifications for it are mostly tied up with defense. And Intel is simply not a defense contractor. Yes, it's at an economic disadvantage, but is that good enough reason to give it access to a defense honeypot? We'll hear first from Hutchison and then from Lewis. They're one of three companies left that are, are, are producing on the leading edge and the only one that's still in the United States that's, that's uh, doing leading edge research. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but if you look at the research Intel does compared to the other two, Intel's way ahead in terms of, of how far they look. They look much further out to the future than anyone else does. And uh, they're, they're, they're much more like the old IBMs and AT&Ts of old when they used to look out, you know, 20, 30 years into the future. And, uh, and the only other place you have that, by the way, is IBM's research group in Albany, and they look 50 years out. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, IBM, Albany, uh, uh, Zurich, you know, they're still yeah. doing really credible uh, research, long-term research into there are a lot of chip makers in the U.S. Intel is the biggest, and it is in some ways increasingly seen as a national champion, something that people want to support. I think that's a good thing. Uh, they've had a few bumps in some of their manufacturing processes, but we've seen this movie before. Uh, they always get through it. Um, whether we make them somehow uniquely the American fab, I would say probably not, uh, just because there's so many others. Uh, A little diversification and competition is always good. When Lewis just referred to diversification, he was referring mostly to different companies. But diversification also applies to an extensive ecosystem of organizations that support commercial operations by performing vital research and development activities. This is Rittner. We believe that it's important to spread this R&D investment around, mm-hmm. um, you know, to the research communities yeah. um, and centers that are developing. Um, and this might be even universities. Um, also, we believe that the national labs play a really important part. And so there's there's a lot of, of uh, individuals and entities, whether it's academia or the labs and so on, that, that are doing research. And so to, to provide that and spread that around to everyone would be important. The motivations for the bill go beyond just semiconductor research and manufacturing. The defensive reflex covers a lot of ground. Here again is James Lewis. If the ability to sell to China shrinks, uh, there'll be a drop in revenue. Most of the big companies say this will affect their ability to spend on R&D. So compensating them through this bill is is not a bad idea. There is, unsurprisingly, a little bit of competition among the companies about who gets what and where does it go and, um, you know, where does this fit in with the deal that was struck earlier to get TSMC to promise to build uh, in Arizona? Um, we'll see if they deliver on that promise. I think they will. But uh, a number of companies have told me, you know, we want equal treatment. If TSMC is getting some breaks, How about some breaks for American companies as well? One of the things several senators are proposing to include in their legislation 
is policies that will encourage manufacturers who have left the U.S. to come back. The term for this is reshoring. This is Lewis again. Reshoring, I'm not sure reshoring is such a good idea. We have fabs all over the world, or American companies have fabs all over the world. It's better to think of this as moving fabs out of China, ending a dependency on China and in our supply chain. COVID had a fair amount to do with this because people looked at Chinese behavior with COVID, dishonest, um, some holdups on supplies, and said, I don't want to be dependent on these people. The other two big leading-edge semiconductor companies are Samsung and TSMC, which of the three is the only pure foundry. TSMC is intricately involved in all of this. Dan Hutchison explained that Taiwan was pleased to support TSMC and a thriving semiconductor business because that served to make the island indispensable to the United States. Taiwan didn't expect to get caught in the middle of a trade war between two superpowers. Here's Lewis and then Hutchison. The, the real concern here is not with uh, Intel. The real concern is with TSMC. Uh, TSMC is uh, a leading producer um, ahead of American companies in some areas. And until recently, China's major source of advanced chips. And so Huawei and TSMC and High Silicon. Now the U.S. has begun to pry that relationship apart, but the focus here is not so much on um, making any one American company uh, the, the champion uh, any more than they already are, but on making sure TSMC isn't, isn't t- selling to a potential enemy. The other company that hasn't gotten as much attention is SMIC. Uh, SMIC is the place where China's decided to place its bets. And the spending now by the Chinese government seems to be directed to trying to make SMIC uh, a Chinese variant of TSMC. So that if they were for some reason cut off from TSMC or if TSMC was no longer able to sell or produce, they would have their own in SMIC. I think, you know, rather than talking about which American company um, the bill, I think, is intended to support all equally. Rather than talking about American companies, we should think about how the U.S. can use this legislation, export controls, sanctions um, to shape the market when it comes to TSMC and SMIC. Uh, that's more the focus, I think, of where the administration is going. But I mean, that's basically what the world's fighting over. Between China and the United States, when we talk about semiconductors, it's fighting about there's two choices. You either you either make sure that Taiwan is your ally or you have your own vertical capability. Lewis noted that folding the legislation into the National Defense Appropriations Act is a good sign because the NDAA is one of the few bills that Congress has to consider regularly and is guaranteed to eventually pass. I want to thank international editor Junko Yoshida and renowned author George Leopold, who conducted some of the interviews you just heard and contributed to this report. That's it for the weekly briefing for the week ending August 7th. Thank you for listening. 
The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned and other multimedia. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.